you are about to hear the best sermon I've preached all year. And then after this, it's all downhill. <laughs> Farmer man was having trouble physically. He didn't have much energy. He was having trouble sleeping. He had body aches, pains here and there. And his wife told him, you know, you ought to go to the doctor and get this checked out. And so finally, after years of ignoring his wife, <clears throat> as most men do, he went ahead and went to the doctor. And when he, went, he got to the doctor, the doctor overlooked the situation and said, boy, I got, oh, I got some bad news for you. He said, what is it? He said, well, you're not, you're not going to make it. Uh, what, what you got going on, I give you six months to live, tops, maybe sooner than that before you pass. And the farmer was a little dejected. He said, doctor, is there anything that can get me through this and that that wouldn't be the end result? And he said, well, there is one thing, but it really doesn't depend on you. It depends on your wife. If your wife every day will let you sleep in and she do the morning chores and she fixes you a full breakfast, bacon, eggs, sausage, toast, uh, coffee, whatever it may be, and then she just kind of lets you lay around in the morning and she fixes you a warm lunch and, and she lets you watch whatever TV show you want to in the afternoon and lets you take an afternoon nap. And then she fixes you a big dinner and, and she does all the evening chores. If, if, if she does all that, then yes, I think, I think you'll be able to live and get past this. And the farmer said, I'm not going to be able to tell her that. She won't believe me. You're going to have to tell her. And so he went out to the waiting room, got his wife, uh, sent his wife in to see the doctor. The doctor told her everything that he told the farmer man. When she came back out to the waiting room, the farmer asked her, what did the doctor say? And she said, you're going to die. <laughs> That's what... <laughs> love has the power to make us do some interesting things, or the lack of love has the power to compel us to do some unusual things. We are in a series called Compelled. And this entire series is based on one line in one verse. It's not even the entire verse. If you have your Bibles or uh, you can watch the screen up here, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or turn on your Bibles, whatever it may be. It comes from the mouth of the Apostle Paul, and it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the first nine verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us this. Just here's a recap. You're going to die, just like the doctor said. We're all going to die. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, you're going to die? Just take a moment and do that. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This has been an encouraging moment already. But the Apostle Paul says, For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Just a little statistic. You ought to know this. One out of one people die. So if you're taking notes and you want to take some statistics, I, you know, I didn't know that. One out of one people die. We don't want to talk about death, though, do we? But the Apostle Paul made it very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you're going to die. And he, he takes nine verses, and he talks about death and what happens thereafter. And then in verse 10, he says, in light of that, the summary of verse 10 is there's going to be a judgment for all. We're all going to stand before God. We're all going to have a day of reckoning. That day is going to happen. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. And then the Apostle Paul says, in light of that, in light of the fact that you're going to die, in light of the fact that we're all going to stand before God, he says, we, in verse 11 through 13, he says, we have a mission. In light of death, in light of the judgment, we have a mission. Now, we all have different jobs, some in here work at Lowe's, some academy sports, some in construction, some in, in, in the health business, some in the education business, some in the oil business, some in FedEx business, some in 
There's other businesses in here. Just, you know, we all have different jobs, insurance, and, and, and down the line, but we all have the same mission. Amen? And it's the same mission that the Apostle Paul had, and he summed it up in five words in verse 11. He said, we try to persuade others. Would you read that aloud with me? We try to persuade others. Interesting word he used. Persuade. That's more than invite. That's more than let. He says, Jesus said one time, let the little children come. That's more than let. That's more than share. That's more than pass out flyers or pass out a card or pass out anything. He uses the word, and it's a strong word. He uses the word persuade. Persuade means to convince people to change their minds. When was, when was the last time you heard someone say, I persuaded him to become a Christian? He didn't want to be. But after I got done with him, after a week, three weeks, three months, three years, over the course of time, I persuaded him to become a Christian. Now, right off the bat, some of you may be offended by that. And you may say in the back of your mind, I thought, I thought we weren't supposed to be that pushy. The devil would love for you to believe that. The devil would love for you to think we should never persuade anybody about the love of Christ. But the Apostle Paul said, he didn't say I, he said, we try to persuade others. He says, that's our mission, that's our ministry, that's our mantra. We have a message, we have a news. Jesus is alive. The blood of Christ can take care of your sins, your guilt. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We have good news, church. We have a mission to persuade others about the gospel of Christ. You don't have to leave this earth lost and bound for hell. You don't have to. The decision is yours, but we get to share it. In Acts chapter 26, Paul's talking to a king. His name was King Agrippa. You can read about the whole conversation in Acts chapter 26. King Agrippa, after getting done with Paul, did not become a Christian, but he did say this in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can what? Oh, what was Paul doing? He was trying to persuade. He was persuading Agrippa, and he was close. If you read the passage, it was close. But Agrippa said, you think you can, in such a short time, persuade me to be a Christian? Because Paul knew this. Every mission needs a motive. Every mission needs a motive. And here's Paul's motive, and here's our motive, and here's this series right here. One line, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us. The other day... Uh, this happened to me. I was driving down the, the street in, in Katy, Texas, where there's no traffic and you never get behind slow drivers. And, and anyway, but we were driving. <laughs> I was driving down the street, and behind me, there was an, I saw the red and blue lights. There was an ambulance that came up behind. And, and what do you think I did when the ambulance came up behind me? We pulled, all of us on, the, on that side of the road, we pulled over onto the side of the road, and we came, in this particular instance, we can't always get to this point, but we came to a complete stop. And the, you know what? I had somewhere to be. And the people behind me had somewhere to be. And the person in front of me, they were driving like they had nowhere to be, but I'm convinced they had somewhere to be. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm going through therapy, and it's, it's, it's working out kind of. But we pulled over. It was soon thereafter. It wasn't long. A couple days later, I'm driving down the road, and the ambulance is coming from the other direction. 
And there was even a median between us. But what do you think all of us drivers did? I'm not even sure what the law in Texas is, but what do you think all of us drivers did when we saw the ambulance? We pulled over again. And we came to a complete, I don't think we came to a complete stop this time, not, uh, not enough time, but we pulled over. And we, I had an agenda that day. But why do you think we pulled over? Because there was a life on the line. Someone's, we wanted that life to be saved. And we were going to do whatever we could to get out of the way. We were going to do whatever we could to help. We were going to do whatever we could to help that mission of, 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 of those paramedics. There was a life at stake. Church, there is eternity at stake. Every day, everybody we come across, eternity is hanging in the balance. It's not just a life. It's a soul that lives forever. Eternity is hanging in the balance. Now, here's how we know we're following Jesus. When his agenda becomes our agenda. When we see other people as souls, not just people in our way on the road. Oh, heaven help me. But when we see people, there is eternity, there are souls, there are people that we come across every day on the road. Now, this is heavy. I can already tell this is a heavy message. Every day we pass people on the road who, if they died today, they would go to hell. That's just true. I don't want it to be true. There's a narrow road and a broad road. Most people take the broad. Eternity is hanging in the balance. Now, here's what it goes on to say in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Here's a statistic. One in ten. That's the number of Christians in America who are actively in a relationship with a non-Christian right now and who is sharing the gospel and leading them to Christ. One out of ten professed Christians in America actively share the gospel right now. One in ten. Now, that means, if I was to ask you, and I'm not going to, but if I, if I was to ask you, raise your hand, if you are in a relationship with a non-Christian right now and you are actively, per, actively walking them to Jesus, and you are talking to them about the gospel, that means only one out of ten of the if that statistic is true, one out of ten of us in this room today are doing that. Now, here's another statistic. It's a different one. If you go to China and talk to the church there, talk to the Christians there, it's the opposite. Nine out of ten are actively engaged in evangelism in China. So here's what they're doing. They're watching us in America. Now, we go to church. If it's convenient, we go to church. If nothing else gets in the way, we go to church. We sing songs as well as anybody in the world. Now, we preach sermons and put them online as well as anybody in the world. Some preachers, I'm not, you know. We have lessons, we have curriculum, we have online stuff better than anybody else in the world. But you know what they're doing in China right now? They are developing a mission plan for North America. They are about to send missionaries to our country. Because we won't do it. Now, we do all this well. Actually, come on over here, we'll show you our buildings. We'll show you our events. We'll show you our big conferences. We'll show you the emotionalism that we have created to make it Christianity. And I felt moved, and it was big, and it was loud, and it was shiny and bright. And wow, and what a message. But we're not sharing the gospel. One in ten. And so they're going to take matters in their own hands, and they're going to do the right thing, what God has called them to do, and they're going to go into all the world and, and, and make disciples. Now, here, here's, here's what bothers me about that. Not the fact that it's one out of ten. Hey, what bothers me is that for most Christians, that that doesn't bother them. 
that we could hear this message today and be unbothered. Oh, it's one out of ten. Let me write that down, and let me go back out, go out to eat after church, and this doesn't even affect me. This doesn't bother me. Okay, that's one passage. Let's add some barbecue sauce to our brisket here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. I want to introduce you to the last command of Jesus. There are many commands of Christ. There's the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. There's the new commandment, John 13, love one another as I have loved you. But this is the last commandment. Beginning in verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, <coughs> excuse me, go and make disciples of all nations. And then what do we do? We baptize them. That's a command from Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Final words, final command, final wishes. Make disciples. Notice he doesn't say find disciples. And he doesn't say steal disciples. <laughs> and he doesn't say if you run into some disciples. And he doesn't say judge if anybody's a disciple. He says make disciples, which has a big implication. It means this, disciples are made. They do not happen on accident. You do not become a follower or, or, or a disciple of Jesus just on a, You don't wake up one morning and it just happened. Now, we all know about Alzheimer's, and Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, and it causes a lot of heartache in a family. Well, and I don't give this illustration lightly, but let's just say... Uh, Marcus, let's say your wife, Linda, had Alzheimer's. And Linda's out. I didn't plan on this, but she's out in the nursery working right now. Um, but let's just say she had Alzheimer's. And I, and man, that'd be devastating, and we hate this for you, Marcus. And back home for the last couple of years, I've been in my garage working, which Chelsea would be shocked at. But I, I've been in my garage working, and I've been putting some solutions together, and I've been putting some formulas together and some medications together, and I, I found the cure for Alzheimer's. I mean, you take this pill, Alzheimer's is gone. And Marcus comes to church. He said, man, pray for my wife. She's, she's battling Alzheimer's. And I go up to him and say, I'll pray for her. But back home, I have this solution in my garage for Alzheimer's. And I don't share it. I keep it a secret. I keep it bottled up for myself. I keep it up on a, up on a shelf. And I don't share the message with the world. I don't share it with my friend. I don't share it with the family. And he just keeps coming to church every week. Please, please, please pray for my wife. She's got Alzheimer's. And, and I, don't, I just keep the solution. I keep the remedy to myself. What would you think of me if I did that? You cold jerk basket. If, now, why would you call me, Jim? All right. But you would say, you are so unloving. You have the remedy to the, to the problem, and you're keeping it to yourself. Now, that's a bad story. You say, man, that's horrible. Let me tell you what's worse. that Christians all over the world have the solution to sin. And there is no remedy to sin outside of the blood of Christ. And we have it. We have the solution. We have the remedy. We have the cure. It's Jesus. And we keep it to ourselves. And we keep it bottled up because we don't want anybody to get mad and we don't want to hurt a friendship and we don't want to get broken out of the social circle and so, hey, I'm not going to tell you how you can go to heaven. I'm not going to tell you how you can fix this. It's through him, but I'm just going to keep it bottled up to myself and that I can't think of a more unloving thing to do. Larry Totten did a study of college students who were atheists. 
And he asked him, why are you an atheist? The number one response he got was basically, and as one man put it, I know people on my campus who profess faith in Christ and have never talked to me about it ever. That's why I'm an atheist. How can you possibly believe that you have the answer to heaven and you not share it with me? And so one lady, one girl openly said, to be a Christian and not share your faith, I can't think of a more unloving thing to do. She's right. The background of Luke 19, there's a story in Luke 19 where Jesus enters a city named Jericho and he sees a man up in a sycamore tree. Do you know the story? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And remember, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm coming to your house today, and I don't, we don't know the conversation that happened in the house. Somehow Jesus talked to Zacchaeus, and when Zacchaeus walked out of the house that day, he was a disciple of Jesus. And it ends the passage, because people were mad at Jesus for talking to sinners, amazingly. It ends the passage in verse 10 by saying, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save who? The lost. Big implication there, church. Big implication in that line. Here it is. People really are lost. They really are. Now, I don't know how this has happened in our groups, in our churches, in our country, among our Christians, but lost has become a four-letter word. We don't use the word lost. It seems too judgmental. We would rather refer to non-Christians as unchurched or on a journey or seeking. And all those may be true. They may be on a journey. We're all on a journey, and it may be true that they're unchurched, but we don't use the word lost. You know why we don't use the word lost? Because lost would imply that you don't know where you are. Lost would imply that you don't know what you're doing. Lost would imply that you don't have the answer. Lost would imply that you're going down the wrong path, and we sure don't want to do that. Tell the truth. And so we don't use the word lost. One of the reasons American Christians have lost our evangelistic fervor is because we have lost our theology of lost. And we will use any term other than that to describe what is really happening. People really are lost. So allow me for a few minutes to push for the recovery of that word lost. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, I'd rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 15, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep. Matthew 18, if a man has 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? When Jesus was criticized for hanging out with sinners, he would tell stories of joy about finding the lost. In Luke 15, Jesus told them a story. If a man has 100 sheep, one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost? Verse 9, he says, when she finds it, talking about a lost coin, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. Later on, Jesus tells of a son who ran away from home. Can you imagine losing your child? But the son goes away, and he's prodigal, and he lives up. He, he, he destroys the inheritance that he got, and one day the son comes back home. And that which, was, which once was lost is now found, and the older brother can't believe it that they're throwing a party for the, for the younger son. But Jesus, basically, in this parable, he says, we had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was 
Lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Lost is a biblical word. Lost is a Jesus word. Lost is a factual word. And the people that don't know Jesus, we're not being judgmental. We are telling the truth. Anybody outside of Christ is lost. But they don't have to be. Amen? They don't have to be. We have the cure. And so, church, this is the sermon right here. This line. This is what we've gathered today from our three passages. We are compelled from the Lord by love for the lost. The three L's. Catch the three L's? I was impressed with the three L's. Thank you. I, you know, I, thank you. We are compelled from the Lord by love for the lost. Let's all read it out loud. We are compelled from the Lord by love for the lost. Christ's love, whose love? The Lord's. We are compelled from the Lord by love for the lost. Let me read this story I ran across. I'm going to have to read it uh, for me to try to remember and tell it. I wouldn't do well. Once there was a little boy. Ever since he could remember, he wanted to be a fireman. The sound of the siren and the deep rumble of the fire truck filled his dreams almost every night. Deep in his heart, there was a longing to be able to someday save people, help people from the ravaging grasp of a fire. It was not a whim of a childhood fantasy. His was the unmistakable call of destiny. Growing up, he never changed his mind. To be sure, he went through all the doubting stages of adolescence. His family and friends wondered if he would be happy being a fireman, but he never wavered. He wanted to be a fireman no matter what. His job and goal in life was to put out fires. Oh, how he longed for the day where he would not be a spectator, but he would actually participate in being a firefighter. But now all he could do was watch. Now the day had arrived. He was accepted into one of the best firemen schools in the country. For three years, he immersed himself in schooling. He spent hours honing his skills on practice fires. He studied firefighting theory long into the nights. His teachers were world-renowned, but still after all these years, he had not put out a real fire. As graduation approached, he realized his long-awaited moment was within reach. But for the first time in his life, he was having doubts. Worse yet, he was afraid and questioning whether he should be a fireman at all. It was then that one of his professors suggested he should travel to Europe and study under one of the greatest firemen theorists of all time. He would be recommended by his professors and receive the greatest training available. It would last for two years. The not-so-little boy decided he would travel to Europe, and for two years he exhausted himself in study and became one of the most brilliantly educated firemen in the entire world. But all he had, he had ever done was put out practice fires. Once again, graduation loomed before him, and once again, he was haunted by indecision. He knew all about fires. He could tell anyone how to fight a fire. In fact, he knew so much that he began to feel his superior knowledge began to place him a notch above ordinary firemen. He became increasingly concerned that he would have to fight fires with uneducated firemen, which could result in him being exposed to unnecessary danger. It was then that he was offered a position to teach at one of the most respected firemen schools in the country. He accepted and for 25 years, he taught with honors and received recognition worldwide as one of the greatest firefighters of all time. He died recently, and when they came across his memoirs, they found a strange passage around his deathbed. He said, I lie here today remembering my life. I still remember my dream and my passion to be a fireman. More than anything else, I wanted to put out fires, but I realized something today. At the end of my life, 
I have never put out a real fire ever. Sad story? It's a sad story vocationally. That's a worse story when it happens spiritually. When we signed up to be a disciple of Jesus, and his last command tells us to go and make disciples, here's, here's the possible outcome. Now catch this. Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Say it again. Disciples make disciples. Let me say it again. Disciples make disciples. That's what disciples do. Now, the converse of that is true. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you're not making disciples, you're not a disciple of Jesus. Because that's what disciples do. Disciples make disciples. And we can sing all the songs we want. And we can preach all the sermons we want. And we can be on all the volunteer teams we want. And we can serve the poor all we want. And we can help the sick all we want. And you can pray all you want. That doesn't mean you're a disciple. Many, not a few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I perform miracles? Didn't I uh, prophesy your name? Didn't I do this? Didn't I sing songs? Didn't I go to church? Didn't I? He said, depart from me. I never knew you. You weren't a disciple. Because disciples make disciples. And if you're a disciple of Jesus and you're not making disciples, it uh, means you might not be a disciple. That's what the scriptures say, and let the scriptures be our guide, amen? We don't want to walk into this thing and be surprised someday. We don't want to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be surprised. And we don't want to point to all these things, and I don't want to point to all these sermons, and I don't want to point to all these events that I was a part of. At the end of the day, we're not really a church. You're not really a fireman. You're not a firefighter. If you never put out a real fire ever, because disciples make disciples. Let, let us never forget, Jade, would you come up and begin playing? Let us never forget this monumental passage, this monumental truth. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Let's all read it out loud. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who does that include? All. And in the Greek, all means all. <laughs> no secret there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When it comes to who needs to be found, you're on the list that Jesus has. Aren't you grateful Jesus found you? You didn't find him first. Jesus found you first. We love him because he first loved us. And when it comes to who needs to be found, we were all on that list. You and I included. You know what we learn? We find out how much we love when we lose something. When I lose a rubber band, I don't even say I lost it. I look for five seconds, I glance under my desk, it's not there, I stop even thinking. I don't even say I lost it, but I turn my world upside down when I lose the remote control. Because it matters to me, sadly. You ever lost your cell phone? Lost my keys last night to my car. We were setting up here at the church. Couldn't, we couldn't, I couldn't go home. 
lost my keys. Do you think I, in five seconds, look, and let's just go, just walk. You find out how much you love when it's lost. You're going to pass dozens, if not hundreds of people on the way home today who are lost. You find out how much you love. We are compelled by the Lord from love for the lost. Why does Jesus put so much emphasis on stories concerning lost things, the lost coin, lost Zacchaeus, the lost sheep, the lost soul? Because whenever a soul is found, heaven rejoices that it has been found because he loves you, he loves me, he loves everyone so much. And what keeps him up at night, actually God doesn't sleep, but what keeps him up at night is those who are lost. May his agenda become our agenda. Disciples make disciples. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to repeat this last line before we sing. Would you repeat it after me? Compelled from the Lord by love for the lost. One more time. Compelled from the Lord by love for the lost. Here's what we got, church. Make a commitment today to be back here next week. I gave you no practical advice this morning about how to do this, but we are next week. We're gonna put some hands on this head and heart, but today was our biblical foundation. I'm gonna do my absolute best in the next several weeks to give you practical advice and methods on how to win people to Jesus. I can't wait. We've been praying for this. We've been preparing for this series. Disciples make disciples. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you that you found us. We were all once lost, and we sometimes forget that. And we do a lot of Christian activity without doing the Christian activity that you have called us to. The last commandment before you ascended into heaven, go and make disciples. And maybe we have a lot of people in here today who have memorized that verse. There's a lot of Christians in the world who have that verse memorized but we have gotten so caught up in this that we have forgotten the primary commandment you've given us to love the lost. Father, may you rekindle our hearts and rekindle our spirits, rekindle the fire within us for those who don't know you. May we be persuaders of the solution to sin. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.